Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle, and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimize your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby, and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt, or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you love it here. Hello, welcome back to the pod. Now, for today's episode, I've decided to release an interview that I did for somebody else's podcast because I think that you'll really enjoy it and get something out of this. So, I was invited onto the plant-based pregnancy podcast with the lovely Beck, which was amazing because she does such good work in the plant-based pregnancy space, which can be very, very, very confusing. Um, especially when you're navigating gestational diabetes, a lot of questions can come up around this in terms of things like carbs and whatnot. So I wanted to let you all listen to it as well, but I also want to clarify some things before we get into it. So I think that this episode is very valuable to all of you, regardless of whether you follow a plant-based diet or not. And when I say plant-based, I don't just mean a vegan or vegetarian diet. A lot of people can think that, but when I like to talk about plant-based approaches, I'm really most of the time talking about just including more variety in your food. So getting in more of those vegetables, fruits, whole grains, nuts and seeds, legumes, things like um, plant-based proteins like tofu and soy and whatnot as well, because we have such clear evidence that doing that and including more of those foods and reducing some of those animal proteins like meat and chicken and a lot of dairy is generally really beneficial to our health and particularly around reducing your risk of things like insulin resistance and diabetes and improving your blood sugar regulation. So really, really relevant. So it's, it doesn't mean that you need to cut all of those animal products out. That's definitely not what I typically recommend. And you might already know that I'm personally mostly plant-based and don't really consume many animal products at all or rarely. And side note here, I don't think that you really need to put a label on your diet. So I don't want to say that I'm vegan or anything like that because it doesn't really always fit that well. So I don't, I just say that I am plant-based and you don't have to label your diet either. But what I'm trying to say is that you don't have to go vegan or vegetarian or completely cut out any animal products from your life to be healthy. Um, And it's not what I would normally recommend my clients do anyway, if they have no interest in doing that. But regardless, I think that this is a really important conversation for everybody because everybody can be taking more of a plant forward approach and it will almost certainly benefit your health and the outcomes that you're having in terms of gestational diabetes. So you'll hear in the episode a little bit more around that and you'll also hear about some of the challenges that can come along when you're following a predominantly plant-based diet. Um, But it's also a really good episode just for a refresher on gestational diabetes and some of the risks and what causes it, all the things like that. So I really like resharing these interviews that I do because I think every now and then it gives you and especially new listeners just that refresher of all of that information that can go in one ear and out the other and can be really confusing. So hopefully I have explained all of that well enough. So listen, enjoy. I hope you love it. And let me know your feedback on Instagram. You can always drop me a DM on there. I'd love to hear from you. Welcome back to the Plant-Based Pregnancy Podcast. In this episode, I have a guest dietitian with me to talk all about gestational diabetes. Now, Helena is an accredited practicing dietitian. She's a nutritionist and a plant-forward eater providing tailored nutrition services to women navigating their gestational diabetes and postpartum journeys. Now, I have followed along and am a big fan fan of Helena's work. So I've actually invited her onto today's episode to talk about gestational diabetes um, as a whole, but then also going a little bit deeper into plant-based diets and what your plate should look like um, and how to start pairing 
your carbohydrate-rich diet, which is a plant-based diet, with other foods and other food groups to help manage your gestational diabetes and your blood sugar levels. Now, in this episode, we talk about the risk of gestational diabetes, the fact that it is absolutely not your fault, and sometimes there is things outside of your control that um, will result in a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. It is absolutely a fantastic listen, and one of the reasons that I actually invited Helena onto the podcast is because I don't look at myself as a gestational diabetes expert. I focus more on plant-based nutrition. And although I can definitely help, I find that I too have learned a lot from Helena in this podcast. So let's get started. Over to you, beautiful Helena. Hey, everyone. Um, I'm Helena. I'm a dietitian, and thank you for the beautiful, warm welcome, Beck. I'm very excited to be on here. It is an absolute pleasure. Um, and yeah, I'm excited. I'm very excited to be here. Like you said, I'm a dietitian. I work predominantly with women who have gestational diabetes, and I really love supporting them through that journey so that they can feel their bodies, feel confident, feel good about what they're eating. I think that there is there is so much misinformation out there about GD and there is so much um, lack of information and e- education and awareness and resources and things like that out there. So, yeah, I just thought, why not Why not get into this and really like try and change that and really help women actually feel good during their gestational diabetes journey where it can feel very isolating and confusing and all of the things. So, Yeah, very happy to be here to chit-chat about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm definitely started to get a few more, you know, curly questions about gestational diabetes. And, you know, even though we're both dietitians and we both have the same training, when you're not in a specific condition or a topic all the time, um, I don't always know the answer to those questions. So I'm so excited to dive into all the questions today, I will say we do have quite a list. So we'll see how far we get down the list. Um, and of course, if there's any other questions that you as a listener has, just you can DM me and I can always pass them on as well. So you can find me at plantful.pregnancy on Instagram. Okay. So let's dive in. Let's start right at the basics. What actually is gestational diabetes? Great question. Um, and it's kind of hard to answer this one concisely, to be honest, but I will do my absolute best for you. And essentially it is having high blood sugar during pregnancy. So that's your baseline definition of what's going on with gestational diabetes. And obviously then that puts you at risk of, you know, certain other things that can put your baby at risk of having things like hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar after you deliver, which I know sounds kind of bonkers given that you're dealing with high blood sugar, but they may be overproducing insulin. Um, and it can also, it can also cause complications around your birth in terms of whether your baby is absorbing too much sugar from your bloodstream being transferred over to them. Um, and so then they can grow quite large. It can make delivery more complicated. It can potentially rule out having a vaginal birth and needing a C-section, but please don't, you know, think that that is always the case. That's definitely not always the case. And there's, there's always options in terms of your birth plan and it doesn't necessarily change anything. There are plenty of women with GD who have a totally physiological birth and, you know, have all of their birth preferences adhered to and all that kind of stuff. So it's not all doom and gloom. It's not all scary. I don't know why I just, I dived right in with the, um, (laughs) with the things that can go wrong, but I don't, want to scare you. And there's more things that can go wrong than that. But essentially it's having high blood sugar during pregnancy and we need to manage it for various reasons. Um, But even to understand what's going on there, we need to take a few steps back and really backpedal and look at why your blood sugar is high during pregnancy. So do you you want me to dive right into that? Yeah. And um, so you've covered a little bit of the risks there. And when you do get a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, I'm happy for you to take it away. In particular, if you can answer what actually causes gestational diabetes, because I know 
you know, that can be a sticking point for some people thinking that maybe, you know, diet is blamed or something else has gone wrong. That means, you know, A equals B, but I know that that may not be the case, but yeah, absolutely. Just um, take it away with whatever you want to share. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're so right that that diagnosis can come with a lot of shame and guilt and feelings of failure. And it's um really hard. It would be a really challenging feeling, but I want you to all know if you have been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, it's absolutely not your fault. You're not a failure. Doesn't mean you're a bad mum. Doesn't mean that you're going to have um, like a difficult birth, a difficult pregnancy, any of that. It doesn't mean you've been eating the wrong things. And if you're really beating yourself up because you had a really rough first trimester and you ate all the beige carbs and you just lived off cereal and ice cream or whatever it was, like, and you're thinking that that contributed to your gestational diabetes, like, please know that it absolutely didn't. Like, it, there are, there's definitely some links and associations between diet and lifestyle and GD, but there are so many other factors that contribute to a much larger extent. Um, and I would say that overall, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a beautiful plant-based eater, I imagine that you're not, um, you know, sitting on the couch 24-7, eating bags of chips, having takeaway every night, eating like, I don't know, <laughs> a truckload of fish and chips on the weekend, whatever it's going to be. You know what I mean? I'm just trying to give you uh, overemphasized examples like that you're probably not the person who has not been looking after their health whatsoever. Um, and that that may have contributed to gestational diabetes in, you know, those sorts of cases. But the majority of the time, it's not, it's not really how diabetes works. It's not really a case of like you eat too much sugar and therefore you get diabetes. It's a little bit more complex than that. So there's lots of things that can put you more at risk of developing gestational diabetes. And I know that was one of your next questions and mm. I'm going off on a tangent. So I'll just kind of go into that now before I circle back and tell you a little bit more about the physiology of why you have high blood sugar during your pregnancy. But basically some of the risk factors include your family history. So if anybody in your family has something like type 2 diabetes, or if your mom or your sister or another close relative had gestational diabetes during their pregnancy, then you're more vulnerable to get it too. Um, being of an older age, so generally like above 40 would increase your risk of GD. Um and then there's ethnicity is a really big one. So we know that a lot of people from like Asian backgrounds and Indian, Southeast Asian, um, Polynesian, Aboriginal, Australian, Hispanic, even like there's, there's heaps of different ethnicities that can exacerbate your risk too. And then certain conditions like PCOS, where you may have underlying insulin resistance, other sorts of um, more lifestyle-related factors. So if you're in a bigger body and you've got a higher BMI, and I like to tread really lightly when I'm talking about things like weight because it's um, it's not a factor that's always as modifiable as other people tend to think that it is, and there's a lot of reasons that someone might be in a bigger body, um, and it's not always to do with having, you know, a crap lifestyle and a crap diet or anything like that. But we do know that having excess fat stores can exacerbate insulin resistance and potentially make things a little bit worse. Um, but, you know, and then there's there's also so many social circumstances that could contribute to somebody's risk of developing GD. Like, you know, maybe there's really poor access to healthcare or poor access even to more nutritious foods and stuff like that. So lots of risk factors. And what actually is it? Okay. So it's basically um, during pregnancy, this happens to everybody, right? Like we have pregnancy hormones that are circulating and a lot of these are driven by the placenta. So you're growing a baby, your placenta is growing and it is releasing hormones that essentially block the action of your insulin. And even there, I need to take another step back and explain to you what insulin is. So insulin is a hormone and it basically does the job of like unlocking doors, right? And so when we eat something like a carbohydrate and we, let's say it's like a piece of bread. So we eat a piece of bread that's broken down into sugar molecules or glucose molecules in our bloodstream. 
And so we can use the words sugar and glucose interchangeably and carbohydrate and sugar and glucose almost interchangeably because all carbohydrates, no matter if it's a like super refined white piece of bread or if it's a really nice dense whole grain seeded piece of bread, both of those will be broken down into sugar into our bloodstream. But the sugar is not very helpful when it's just sitting in our blood. We don't really need it there. We need it to go into places like our muscles and our brain and our liver where it can fuel us or it can go into storage. And it's our body's preferred source of fuel. So for example, our brain is thought to need like 130 grams of sugar alone to function every single day. And to put that in context for you, that is like eight slices of bread which is a lot. So your brain's like constantly ticking away, burning through fuel. So we really need to get the sugar out of your bloodstream and into those places where it needs to go, but it can't get there on its own because the cells are locked. So imagine all your cells are locked and it needs something to come and help the sugar get out of the blood and into those cells. So we need something to unlock the door. Insulin is that handy lock. Sorry, key. (laughs) Insulin is the key that does that job. So the the pancreas releases the hormone insulin in response to you eating the piece of bread and it being broken down into sugar in your bloodstream. And it generally releases the right amount to take the right amount of sugar out of your bloodstream, take it over to the cells and unlock the door, right? Um, in pregnancy, and this is where I was saying this happens to basically everybody, your placenta starts producing hormones that essentially block that action of the insulin. So that might mean that it's actually like a really old rusty key that's being produced or not enough keys for the amount of sugar that's being produced. Or maybe the lock itself keeps getting jammed so the key can't really do its job very well. So there could be multiple reasons is what I'm getting at that you have Insulin that's just not working as well. So there might not be as much being produced and released from the pancreas or the actual insulin itself might not work very well or the cells might have like, and the receptors, they also could be more difficult to get into. So there's multiple reasons that, or multiple ways that insulin resistance can present. And biologically, biologically, sorry, it kind of makes sense that we have this insulin resistance during pregnancy because we essentially need our body to take more sugar over to the baby through the placenta. So our body keeps our blood sugar like a little bit higher so we can ensure that more of that is shunted over to the baby to, you know, help them grow because they need a lot of fuel to grow as well. Um, so compared to when you're not pregnant, your body needs to produce two to three times more insulin than it otherwise would. And some people's bodies simply can't keep up with this, right? So then you would have that diagnosis of gestational diabetes where essentially those hormones are really getting in the way of your insulin's function. And so therefore your sugar remains too high and you're not able to compensate for that. Um, And then we really need to manage it. So we need to look at you know what's going on with your lifestyle, see what we can optimize. And then for some people that might mean medication or insulin. So we can talk about that um, later on if you like, but that's essentially what's causing gestational diabetes. The biggest driver of it is those, you know, pregnancy and placental hormones. So you're not a failure, haven't done anything wrong. It's probably not because you ate too many beige carbs in the first trimester, like I said. Um, it's really um, a lot, a lot, a lot to do with those hormones. So, yeah. How was wow. that? Did that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, um, it's a good reminder for me, but definitely I think the placenta has a lot to answer for in pregnancy yeah. and, you know, <laughs> a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. But like you're saying, you know, you could potentially be eating really healthy and be really active, but at the end of the day, if there's, you know, hormones that um, or cells that aren't necessarily being receptive or responsive to the insulin, then, you know, there's there's things that are totally out of your control um, in this consider- in this case as well. So I really like that you gave the science there and then, um, yeah, explained the rusty key, the wrong key, 
maybe the lock is potentially, you know, a little bit um, jammed up and not working as well either. And I was going to ask, like, is there a reason why the placenta does that? You know, that, that it, you know, the cells are kind of locked or, you know, blocked up, for example. Um, and you answered that as well. So that is so fascinating that um, it's really to push, you know, that glucose, I think you said, into or towards the baby because the baby needs that fuel and energy to grow as well. And correct me if I'm wrong there. <laughs> no, I, but I think that that's the current thinking anyway. And, yeah. uh, you know, we may uncover more things around it in the future. I think that there's still some relative unknowns around gestational diabetes and why it does happen. But I think that's one of the strongest theories out there that Uh essentially that's how we can help baby grow. So yeah, it's, it's so interesting. Like there's so much we don't know about GD still. So I always find it funny that, you know, some of the questions that you guys listening, I'm sure might have, and people ask me all the time, I sometimes just think I don't know and I don't think anyone knows Mm. the answer to this question and they're always really really good questions but then the research is still catching up and we're lucky there is so much more research coming out about GD but yeah for certain things it's like well we've got our best available evidence and our best theories and hypotheses and I think that that's um yeah that's just part of it hey Mm, yeah, totally. And I think that's across the board as well with lots of different conditions that in pregnancy, especially because you can't always test the pregnant population. Um, so that's something to be aware of as well. So moving on a little bit, I know, you know, I think it's at the either 24 week mark or 26 week mark. You might correct me on this. Typically, when you're pregnant, you go to the doctor and, you know, get some testing done around gestational diabetes and seeing what your blood sugars are potentially doing or, you know, testing your blood sugars, seeing what they're doing. And if they maybe are out of range, then potentially there's a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. But a common question that potentially pops up is, you know, what actually is an oral glucose tolerance test? Yeah, great question. And a lot of people are really scared of the oral glucose tolerance test. Basically, it is our gold standard way to know whether you have insulin resistance that needs to be managed or not. So exactly as you said, you'll go to the doctor. It's usually around the 26 to 28 week mark, I think is standard for us in Australia to do the oral glucose tolerance test. And if you have any international listeners, then it might work a little bit differently over there. Just important to note. So we do, um, like a a two or three hour oral glucose tolerance test. Whereas I know in the US they have like a two-step approach to this, but we'll just talk about what we do here. Um, So basically it's just routine. We get everybody to go over to the clinic and you'll generally have an early morning appointment and you need to be fully fasted. So I think it's like at least eight, 10 hours. You can't have eaten or had anything to drink except for water. So nothing in your system. And then you show up in the morning, they'll take your blood because they really want to get just a baseline reading of what your blood sugar does like first thing when there's no real other external influences on it. So like I said, you haven't had anything to eat or drink that might influence your blood sugar. And then after that, you have to unfortunately just stay put for the next two hours because they'll take your blood again. You do have to stay put for two to three or three hours. And the first thing they'll do is get you to drink this sugary drink, right? And lots of people, this is what I was saying, lots of people are scared of because apparently it doesn't taste very good. I haven't ever tasted it, but it's basically this really sugary drink where there's 75 grams of glucose in there. And you drink that after you've had your baseline fasting blood sugar taken. And then they want to test your blood sugar again at the one hour mark to see what it's doing. And it's expected that it will go high. Like it's expected that you'll, you know, have a blood sugar spike at that point, but we want to see how high it goes. And then they'll check your blood again at the two hour mark. And in that time, so the time that you've been there, like you can't do any exercise, you can't eat or drink anything, you have to remain totally fasted. Again, I think you can have some water, but that's really about it. Um, So that we can just see exactly what happens under like 
a pressurized environment to your blood sugar. And at that two hour mark, we want to see whether it's coming back down to an acceptable level. So we're basically using that method to see how's your insulin responding to a really big load of sugar. And then there's certain like thresholds or cutoffs where if your number is above that, you'll be diagnosed with GD. And that can be on any one of those time points. If you have um, a a reading that is even like 0.1 above what that threshold is, you'll be diagnosed with GD. And I have to say like a lot of people come out of that test with maybe just a really slightly elevated value on one of those time points. And they'll think, oh, I think it's just a misdiagnosis. Like, I think I'm fine. I don't really want to accept this diagnosis because like we were saying at the start, it often comes with so much guilt and shame and all of those really, um, really hard emotions around it when you do get diagnosed. But please, please, please just accept the diagnosis because it would be just the worst thing in the world if you decided you didn't have GD because you were only slightly over and then you didn't manage anything and then we didn't know what your blood sugar was doing throughout the rest of your pregnancy and what if it was running high that whole time and we didn't know. Like best case scenario is like, yep, it's a misdiagnosis. We manage your blood sugar anyway. You have really great levels the whole time, smooth sailing, don't really need to worry about it too much. And then it doesn't interfere with anything in terms of, you know, how you give birth or any of those outcomes. That would be amazing. And then we just say, cool, it was a misdiagnosis. But if we missed that diagnosis and we didn't get it right, that would be um, that would be a bit of a disaster. And I think you'd feel worse. <laughs> you'd feel way, 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 way worse. So it's cool. Like having the knowledge is power, like just monitor your blood sugar if you need to, for sure. Um And also just know that during your pregnancy, your blood sugar actually will probably get a bit worse if you have been diagnosed with GD because your baby's growing, placenta is growing. And so those levels of hormones actually just continue to increase, right? So it's a bit of a moving target. Like at the time you do that oral glucose tolerance test, you might be like, yep, my number was just only slightly above that, you know, that target threshold. But then as time goes on, if you did that test again, your number might come up a lot higher. And so you would see that in your own testing of your blood sugar levels that it might be fine at the start and you might well think like, oh, misdiagnosis, like because nothing's wrong. This is fine. Like just under your normal conditions of eating and drinking. But then we might get like, I don't know, six weeks down the track and all of a sudden you're like, what's happened? I don't know what's going wrong? I'm eating the same things and suddenly my blood sugar feels like it's out of control. And that's just, again, because your hormones are um, increasing, they're elevating. So it's nothing really to do with what you're doing. But again, it just reiterates that we can't just say, oh, it's a misdiagnosis. I don't need to worry about managing it because we don't know what those levels will look like down the track either. So Mm -hmm. really super important to do the test and take that diagnosis and then manage it as best you can. I think you make some really good points there, uh, especially if, if, you know, if you're listening to this and you kind of are thinking, you know, I've been eating really healthy. And in the case of a lot of clients I see, you know, often to their diet once being plant-based for often, you know, at least a year, sometimes seven plus years, and then being pregnant and only um, coming to me to make sure that they're ticking off the essentials and making a few tweaks, I can see how if you're already kind of health conscious and feel like you're already eating well, if you potentially do de- get a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, you might have that feeling or high, might have thoughts like, I can manage it myself. But it is really important to not ignore that diagnosis and seek, you know, um, support from either, you know, a GD dietitian or a dietitian in general that can help you guide you through those steps so that you're not potentially putting you and baby at risk. And I didn't even think of that. I didn't even have a question about that to ask you. So I love that you brought that up and just highlighting that it's important not to dismiss the diagnosis, um, even when you've been eating really healthy or, you know, consider yourself as a health conscious person as well. So, yeah. 
The only other thing I just want to touch on here is I do get a lot of questions from, you know, my Instagram community uh, on Facebook and some of my clients around this oral glucose tolerance test. Can you eat something else? Like, do you have to have the glucose drink or can you eat a bunch of, you know, vegan jelly beans, for example? Like, is there alternatives to this drink? Yeah. So, I'll say there's options. And- I say, again, I want to tread lightly around this topic because you have to know that I'm pretty in favor of just doing the oral glucose tolerance test. And I know there's some pushback. Uh, I would say firstly, like when you're asking that question, I want to know why, like what is your rationale? And for some people that might be really valid and it might be like, because I've got like hyperemesis and there's no way I'll be able to stomach it. Or you've just had really severe nausea, whatever it is. Like there might be some reason where you just end up throwing up the drink again and we wouldn't be able to take that as an accurate reflection of what's going on anyway. Um, For some people, uh, it might not be necessary if we already know you've got like a diagnosis of type 2 or something like that. And I should also say those, if you're considered really high risk and maybe you have other signs of insulin resistance or something or strong risk factors, you'd have to do that test uh, probably much earlier in your pregnancy and repeat it again if you came up negative at the start when you first did that test. Um, But, yeah, otherwise I would be asking, like, why? And what's your hesitation? Mm -hmm. Because the thing with the oral glucose tolerance test is that it's, no, it's not necessarily healthy for us to take 75 grams of sugar in all at once. But it's a it's a once off thing that's absolutely not harmful for our baby or for us in that isolated circumstance, and it's doing more positive than it is negative, really, when we think about what that outcome is and what we can then achieve in terms of being able to manage your blood sugar when we know what's going wrong. Some people argue that it's not really reflective of real life, but it's not the point. It's not really meant to be. It's meant to put the system under pressure and put you into that test condition to see what happens so that we can then monitor you. So it's not really meant to reflect real life. Mm -hmm. Now, in saying that, there's still options. So if you really don't want to do it for whatever reason, you can do just like at-home testing. Sometimes your doctor will be on board with that. If you say, look, not I don't want to do the test, like what else can I do? They might send you home with either a continuous glucose monitor, which is basically like a sensor that you can insert into your body for like more, as the name suggests, continuous monitoring of your blood sugar. Um, Or you can do the finger pricks. They might send you with a glucometer is what it's called, just a little testing machine. So you can prick your own finger like you would if you had gestational diabetes and see what's going on that way. And you would probably need to do that for around a week. I'm not really sure. It would be up to your GP or your diabetes educator as to how long they would want you monitoring like that to see what's happening. Um, There's another measurement in terms of like a blood test called the HbA1c, but it's not really accurate during pregnancy. So that's not really recommended as a testing measure. Um, and if it would probably more so be an indicator of it being a risk factor in terms of someone had an elevated HbA1c, then they would probably send them for testing earlier on, but not really a good, accurate, reflective test for us to use just in normal circumstances. Um, and then there's some questions around like, oh, can I just eat jelly beans or can I just eat like a muffin or can I eat, I don't know, some lolly snakes, whatever, choose your thing. And the answer is it's kind of funny. I actually, I knew you were going to ask this. So I had a little look through the research and there's been some studies on jelly beans, on strawberry Twizzlers and on ice cream and on muffins, funnily enough. So (laughs) people have looked into it, trying to find alternatives that people are happier with, but The main conclusion I found is that there's some people that seem pro, some people that seem negative, and there's potential, but it does not seem as accurate as our standard oral glucose tolerance test. So when it's been compared against that, there's been studies where they found that both were like somewhat predictive, but in the case where like jelly beans, for example, were used, 
they only found two people to be diagnosed with GD, but when they compared that against like the same women doing the different test, four of them would have been diagnosed. So that's like half that they would have missed if they were just doing the jelly beans. And then, I don't know, and that's been kind of the repeated conclusion from a few of those that there's potential for um, false negatives in the sense of people getting a false negative diagnosis when they should have been diagnosed. And then I just like see some practical differences when I think about it, like um, I don't know, could you really eat a whole bag of jelly beans? Because you'd need to eat like 100 grams to get that 75 gram dosage. And that would be, um, yeah, like a whole bag of glucogel jelly beans or something, I think is what I looked up to find that out. And then the other thing is that the the makeup of those other types of foods, like jelly beans, like other types of lollies, is not actually the same generally as the makeup of that glucose drink like there might be a mix of different types of sugar like sucrose and I don't know glucose and other types that might be thrown in there so it might just actually be a different composition and how that behaves in the body might be different so Mm -hmm. that's another interesting thing to know but I don't know if it was me I think I would um probably have an easier time just getting down the drink than needing to have like a hundred grams of lollies because that would be hard and um, I think it might also take a really long time, whereas mm. we need you to kind of drink it straight away so we can get those time points over and done with, like that yeah. one hour and two hour test. I think eating a bag of lollies would take me a lot longer. I'd probably start to feel quite a bit sicker mm-hmm. earlier, I'd say. Anyway, yeah, definitely. And thought. I mean, I could definitely eat a bag of lollies, but maybe not, <laughs> in, a, maybe not in a short period of time. Yeah, in like five minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that would probably make you feel a lot more sicker than just having the drink, getting it done with, and then being able to have water, you know, potentially in yeah. the next hour or two. So, Yeah, you make some really good points there. And I love that there's actually research being done because obviously this is a sticking point, you know, people not wanting to do um, the oral glucose tolerant test because of the sweetness of the drink um, and what actually could be an alternative. So I love that there's alternative, you know, they're doing studies on that. Yeah, and And I think it's valid because it it would be really cool to have a good option. Like I think it would be awesome. Like that, you know, people want a different option. Let's try and find one. But right now I'm just going to say, just park that. It's not standardized. It's not Mm -hmm. evidence-based at this point. So Mm -hmm. yeah. And I don't think worth taking the risk to be honest. Like if there's potential that you're going to, you, you could be misdiagnosed, you know, one out of two could be misdiagnosed. I think that is actually a little bit more scary than, um, you know, going through the being uncomfortable potentially um, with um, drinking a really sweet drink. Yeah. Awesome. So the next little part of the podcast is actually some listener questions. So we now know what GD is, uh, some of the risk factors, what potentially is causing it. And we talked about the placenta there. So some of these next questions, they are worded exactly how you sent them through. So I'm going to ask them how you sent them through. So the first one is a little bit of a case study. Um, this particular mama reached out saying, I'm vegetarian, I'm 24 weeks pregnant, and I've just been tested with gestational diabetes. Is there any advice on what food I can and cannot take or control? Great question. And, you know, this is where I think that a lot of people get stuck, especially if you're vegetarian and you're probably eating quite well, I would imagine, um, that I just want to reframe that for you in your mind and think, let's start thinking less about the negatives and what we need to take out of your diet when you've been diagnosed with GD and start thinking a little bit more like positively, but also just inclusively. I really like to look at your diet in a much more like holistic lens rather than jumping to like, well, obviously I need to cut out carbs because that's also not the case. That's a really big misconception. And I don't think it really supports anybody when we just think about what you need to restrict and remove from your diet, right? So essentially healthy eating for somebody who's been diagnosed with GD is pretty much the same as the type of healthy eating that I would recommend for absolutely everybody. And That is with a caveat, like there's some slight tweaks. Of course, we need to be a little bit more 
um, aware and on top of what's going on with your carbohydrate intake and your blood sugar. But at the end of the day, if we were all eating in a pattern that would, you know, align with the general principles of managing insulin resistance and GD, like I think you'd be pretty well off. So for me, that would mean like your first place to start is quite basic and thinking about the whole picture of your diet and think, okay, are you mostly eating whole un- relatively unprocessed foods? Is that making up the majority of your diet? Are you hitting some target serves of things like whole grains? Are you getting in like three to four good serves of protein? Are you getting in plenty of healthy fats? Are you getting five serves of vegetables per day? Are you getting three to four serves of calcium per day? Are you getting two serves of fruit per day? Are you having a handful of nuts every day? Are you using extra virgin olive oil? Are you having, you know, if you eat fish, are you having fish a couple of times a week? You know, are you doing those things? And I'm kind of, I'm saying a lot of those things deliberately because it can sound overwhelming, but what I'm kind of getting at is if you're ticking all of those boxes, we're probably doing a really good job of creating a really well-balanced diet that doesn't have much room for other like kind of discretionary things. And they're the things that would be, you know, the most problematic, I suppose. So we need to look at your diet as a whole, really, um, emphasize like what of those factors we can add in to make sure you're eating enough predominantly because I also see a really big trend towards like taking things out, restricting, restricting carbs, and then just under eating throughout your gestational diabetes journey. So you need to make sure you're eating enough and not be compromising on that for the sake of your blood sugar levels. That's really, really important. They're kind of competing priorities, right? Of making sure you're getting in all of those nutrients that you need during pregnancy. Um, it does it like it feels like it competes a little bit with having really balanced blood sugar, but both are equally important. And we kind of have more tools in our tool belt for your blood sugar. So you need to be able to eat enough to support your good health and your bub's development, right? And then I would start really understanding some things around like, well, what are your macronutrients? So that's like I said, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And then we've got like fiber. And do you know like what those types of foods are? Like carbs are things like your breads and your cereals and even legumes and dairy foods and fruit. So there's lots of things that go into that. And then protein, hopefully you know about that as well. You obviously don't eat meat, but then there's, if you have them, fish and eggs and dairy foods and tofu and legumes and all sorts of plant-based proteins. And we've got healthy fats like your oil, avocado, nuts, things like that, right? So I'd understand those. And then I would get familiar with the concept of glycemic index, but also more Uh, importantly, the concept of glycemic load. And so I barely even use those words, to be honest, when I'm teaching my clients about how to eat, because the general principle that I think would be really helpful for you at the moment is trying to structure your plate on a practical level with like a quarter carbohydrates. And we want those ideally to be nice whole grains. We want half a plate of Awesome non-starchy vegetables, colorful. We want like three colors at least on your plate at those main meals. A quarter of your plate of a good quality protein. And it might get tricky if that doubles up with a serve of carbs for some people if they're vegetarian and that might look like legumes. We just need to be mindful of that and not, you know, tripling up on carbs. But that's a bit of a tangent. And then we want some healthy fats in there as well. And so on a practical level, if you're building a plate like that, that's pretty much what I would recommend for everybody anyway. And it hits our things of like glycemic index and glycemic load, because when we pair our carbohydrates, which are the thing that have the most um, influence over our blood sugar with other factors like fiber, like protein and like fats, those other elements slow down our digestion and actually delay the rise in blood sugar. So if we're already like just looking holistically at getting in a whole lot of really beautiful, healthy elements into your diet, they are just by default naturally helping to keep your blood sugar more balanced. So I would look at it that way as a place to start. Mm. Does that answer the question, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the real takeaway there is variety on your plate 
where you're looking at lots of colors and whole grains, um, but then making sure you're kind of portioning your plate as well in the right proportions. And it's not to say like if you portion your plate the wrong way on the wrong day or whatever, it's going to have, you know, a really bad effect. But I think if, if you're listening to this and you have a question like this potentially, or this maybe is you, I think it's really important just going off what you're saying to, to be really kind to yourself, but also to just check in, like, what are you eating? What proportion are you eating in? Is there lots of color? Is there lots of variety? What can you add in to boost that rather than what you can take away? I think there's a lot of advice, especially, and, you know, not to, not to say like we're better than doctors or anything, but I think there is a lot of really simple advice saying, you know, avoid carbs or avoid sugar potentially. And typically that's what I hear. And it's, it's not necessarily the truth. There's, you know, I think a few, um, it's a little bit more complex than that. And you can simply start by just checking in to see, you know, am I eating lots of variety? Am I eating lots of color? Where possible, of course, pregnancy isn't always straightforward. Um, and that's where you might need a little bit more, you know, tailored support. But I really like how you said, you know, just checking in, you know, what proportions do you have on the plate? Is there color? Is there variety? So, yeah, you definitely answered that question. I think that leads really nicely, though, to the fact that, you know, carbs, plant-based diets, they go hand in hand. Um, and, you know, something that I work on a lot with um, a lot of the clients that I work with either one-on-one or in my programs is building that balanced plate, but in a way that meets your requirements for your essential nutrients, but also your protein. But we do know that a plant-based diet is a mostly plant-based, is mostly carbohydrate-rich diet. Can you talk to any evidence that you know of about eating plant-based and gestational diabetes? Yeah, the evidence that I know of is really positive, which makes me so happy because I am plant-based myself as well. Yay. And yeah, it's it's so cool to see that we have research that's backing this. I will say sometimes the research can be a little bit shaky because it's hard any time to do nutrition research because you're looking at a lot of the time observational studies and just like patterns and what people can remember in like a food questionnaire, which is hit and miss. Um, but we seem to uh, have some pretty clear associations between people who have more whole food based diets who are, you know, and this would rely on you being a plant based eater who's having this type of diet because you can definitely have like a low quality diet and be plant based. But the people who are plant based with a really high quality diet, like you said, getting lots of colors, getting lots of variety, getting really, um, good quality foods into their diet have a lower associated with a lower risk of gestational diabetes compared with people who might be eating more red meat, um, dairy foods, processed foods, things like that, which is pretty cool. And that's reflected outside of pregnancy and outside of GD as well, where we know that insulin resistance is really reduced um, when people are eating a better quality diet and exacerbated when there is a high saturated fat intake um, and all those sorts of things that I just mentioned before. So it's cool. And the other thing is that there isn't really any clear evidence to suggest that a low-carb diet is helpful or supportive in any way when you have GD. And last time I did a really thorough dig through all of this, which I did do, um, and you can listen to it on my podcast as well. Like I, it was pretty recent. Um, that carbs come out on top. Like we can be pretty liberal with carbs in your diet, so you don't need to be scared of them. I will say it's important to know how to incorporate them in a clever way and a strategic way. So please pair your carbs, like I said, with protein, with fats, with fiber, whenever you're having carbohydrates, because you do need those other elements to help slow the digestion of them and keep your blood sugar in check. But in general, being pretty liberal with your carbs seems to be a good thing. And there were more risks associated with a low carb diet in a gestational diabetes uh, pregnancy than when you are including lots of risks as per pretty much a summary of all of the evidence. So we can be liberal, 
But like I said um, before, I was saying, and you were saying as well, that sometimes your protein source is also a carbohydrate source when it is something like chickpeas, lentils, beans, those sorts of foods in particular. So we need to be a little bit more careful of those. And sometimes a meal can be missing those other elements to balance it out. And I do a little bit of lurking in like support groups and stuff. And it's so timely and relevant that I literally saw saw somebody post about this this morning in one that I'm in where they were quite confused saying, I'm vegetarian. I had this meal of, I think it was like lentils and uh, maybe it was like a a wrap. I'm pretty sure it was like a wrap with beans and rice actually. And they were confused because it was like beautiful, healthy meal. Everyone keeps telling me beans are protein because I'm vegetarian. So had this wrap with the rice and the beans. Like I guess it was a burrito. My level was huge. I think it was like nine in the nines, which we really needed to be like around 6.7 is your usual target after meals or your upper limit. So it was a pretty big number and they were confused because they keep hearing, you know, that those legumes are protein. But that's a classic example of where we've got three types of carbohydrates all in one meal without really much to buffer it out. So you might need to diversify your protein sources a little bit um, as much as you can within the restraints of a plant-based diet. But also think about the portion of them. And so maybe we needed to just either reduce all of those elements in that meal. So we had a slightly smaller proportion of carbs, or we needed to take one out, like take out the rice, or we needed to take out some of the beans, whatever it was, and just create a more balanced plate Mm. in some way, more healthy fats, more fiber, whatever it could be to help balance that out. So that's the caveat with the carbs. Yeah, I think that's a really good point because I didn't. I mean, I didn't even think of that. Yes, obviously, eating plant based is all carbs. Most well, we're pretty much carbohydrate. It's higher in carbohydrate, but when you put it into uh, that example of a wrap with lentils and maybe some spinach and then rice, you would think that that is it is a healthy. It is healthy and it is balanced. Yeah, yeah. but for some people, that's going to push you way over. You know the recommended range for your blood sugars. So would an example potentially be adding things like maybe avocado to slow Absolutely. the release of the carbohydrates in that and or even like some um, minced the, tofu, yeah. like if you scrambled up some tofu or something and maybe added that into a bean mix type of thing so you could maybe like reduce down your amount of beans, for example, add in more tofu so we're getting in more protein, add some avocado, maybe you halve the rice or you even just take the rice out of that one so that we've then only got like a smaller amount of beans. We've still got the wrap and then we're adding some more elements like some avo, some tofu, so we've got healthy fats, we've got proteins, and then we try and aim for those three colours in that meal as well so we can get Mm. some spinach, like you said, we can grab some tomatoes, we can grab some carrot, whatever, and really bulk it up and even having like a salad on the side or something like that could help too. Mm-hmm. And I might just like quickly mention there'll there'll be like numbers thrown around of like you can only have 30 to 45 grams of carbs. That's kind of made up. So especially in a plant-based diet, I would throw that out the window and just look more about like how do we balance it. Mm, really, really good point. And I think there's so much, you know, you can go online, you can Google it, you can go into the forums, the Facebook forums and ask advice and maybe people will give you those numbers or you'll see them when you Google. But yeah. Everyone is going to be so different in terms of how much they actually need. It's like protein. Everyone is different in actually how much protein you need to have a healthy pregnancy. Um, and, you know, just back on that wrap, if you're having, having, if you're adding avocado as a source of fat, it could even be like nuts and seeds, like having a side of um, almonds with it or having the salad with almonds um, or, you know, hemp seeds. I seem to add hemp seeds and chia seeds to a lot of my carbohydrate rich meals like birch and muesli or porridge and that's just going to add in more of that fat and protein to help slow the release of the carbohydrate into the bloodstream which is what we want right absolutely and i don't know you could even 
get creative, have a bit of a fun dessert, have some coconut yogurt afterwards, mm. something like that with some chia seeds on it. And then, mm. you know, you've got something else to help slow that digestion. Mm. There's so many options, so many. And I love it. Yeah, so many practical examples. As long as your cal- as long as your coconut yogurt is calcium fortified where possible, but that's a whole nother topic. <laughs> um, okay, let's go for one more question, and then I think we'll wrap things up. Um, yeah, I think this question did come through, and I think it is. We've kind of spoken to it already, or you've kind of spoken to it already. But if you did have any other tips to prevent GD. If you already have a healthy BMI, if you're already working out on a regular occasion, and if you eat whole food, plant-based. This is such a good question. And yeah, like I just have to say so so many times it's not your fault. And I see so many women who are stuck in this limbo of like, but I do all the right things. Like what is wrong? Um, But there's still stuff you can do. Even if you feel like you're eating all of the right things, you know, that's pretty subjective. And so it's whole food, plant-based. Like we just said, that could be like so healthy and nutritious and ticking so many boxes, but it might also just be like slightly off balance in terms of proportions and like little tweaks that could be made around making sure your meals are really super balanced or as balanced as they can be to keep your blood sugar in check. Um, And I guess we're talking about prevention, but the same things really apply in terms of reducing insulin resistance. But making sure that you are eating all of those things that we know really support reduced insulin resistance and keeping those plates nice and balanced so that it's not tipping too far into like just carbs on carbs on carbs. Um, And then there's some other like kind of cool bits and pieces we can look at. So first we could look at your overall lifestyle. So we've got to factor that in. You said that you already do work out regularly. Um, but we can also think about so many other factors that can contribute to this. So for example, are you getting enough sleep? We know that if you're getting less than seven hours of sleep per night, and if it's not good quality sleep, then that can also be um, associated with higher blood sugar and development of gestational diabetes for sure. Then there's things like stress, absolutely huge one, which can drive things like cortisol and those stress hormones, um, which can also elevate blood sugar. And potentially over time, that could exacerbate a risk of something like GD. But if you have GD as well, like it's so important to like proactively manage your stress, which is a hundred times easier said than done. I get that, especially when you're stressed out of your mind about the blood sugar. It's like this whole vicious cycle, right? Um, but really try your best to be proactively managing that however you can. So really think about your lifestyle. And I doubt it just based on the the things that you've said, but if you're smoking or if you're you know doing things like that, then that's obvious too, that you really want to be optimizing in all areas and drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, reducing your stress. And even if you're working out like, I don't know, doing a 45 minute session once or twice a week, we want to make sure there's still incidental activity in there as well. So are you actually just otherwise sitting all day? Can we get some more like little bits of movement in too? So there's all your lifestyle things really. And then we've got like other smaller things we can dive into, like make sure you're getting blood tests. If you're pregnant, you probably have, but we really need to look at like if there's any possible underlying deficiencies that could also be linked. So for example, vitamin D deficiency has a really big link, surprisingly, with development of GD. So that's just one example. And I actually did like a whole lot of research into other sorts of deficiencies and things recently. And there's, you know, the different studies have found different things. There's nothing I would say is overly conclusive, but we know that basically if you've got a diet that's heavy in deficiencies or sorry, like your, I guess like your body has deficiencies, then you may be more vulnerable to development of something like GD. So make sure that you are ticking those boxes and correcting any deficiencies as soon as possible. Then there's um more specifics as well. Like this is more relevant if you have been diagnosed, but even things like your meal timing, like we know from a lot of research outside of GD, um, but it, it can also be applied. 
is that our sensitivity to insulin and our ability to metabolize carbohydrate is way better like in the start of the day in general terms. So try and have more of your carbohydrates and more of your total daily intake, I suppose, like when you're active, when you're awake in the morning, in lunchtime, like don't be the person that kind of skips everything and then just has a really big dinner and try not to eat too late at night because we, it's, it's not the thing of like no carbs after 8 p.m. Like that's not what I'm saying. That's like throw that away. But eating earlier for most people seems to be better for us metabolically because that's to do with our circadian rhythm and things like that. Um, and then you can also talk to your team if you've got a dietitian in particular, like about other kind of supplements that are a bit new, a bit novel that could be something to implement. So with certain people, depending on their underlying risk factors and yeah, level of risk of developing GD, and if they've just been diagnosed, those sorts of people, there's some certain supplements that I might um, implement. I don't really want to mention them here because I don't want people to do this without guidance, really. But certain things that you could try that, I don't know, they might make a difference. They might not. Like the research isn't super strong, but there's no real downsides. So it seems quite progressive that we can look at those sorts of um, options as well. So yeah, there's there's heaps you can do. They might all, not all like um, be huge things on their own, but if you add them all up, I think that, yeah, when you totally have a look at your lifestyle as a whole, you think about your diet and yes, is it ticking all the boxes? Are we correcting deficiencies as well with supplements where we need to? And are we making sure the proportions and things like that and the timing is all good? Um, and are we looking at, I guess, the one percenters, but make sure you're doing the foundational things first. Yeah, I'm a little bit gobsmacked, to be honest with this. <laughs> um, you make some really good points there. The foundations first, but especially, you know, we're both plant-based and advocates of a plant-based diet. The evidence supports that. But if you have an underlying deficiency or potentially you're taking a supplement that isn't correcting a deficiency, then, you know, that is, it, it can be a really easy fix as long as you're taking the right supplement in the right dose, in the right form. And I'm sure if you've been following this podcast for a while, you know that I definitely talk about that a lot. So I love that you brought that up. Um, and vitamin D is something that is typically low in a plant-based population. It, it definitely is. And it can get kind of pushed under the radar um, and not corrected um, going into pregnancy and during pregnancy. So something to kind of look out for um, and potentially get a test for if you are kind of conscious of GD and wanting to, you know, put some things into place potentially to um, lower your risk. Absolutely. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I guess actually just really, really quickly, one yeah. thing, please don't preventatively take iron because mm -hmm. we know that that is associated with development of GD, like a little bit of research saying that. So unless you're deficient, like don't take, I'm not saying don't take iron in general, like it's definitely not going to exacerbate your risk if you're deficient and you need that top up. But I know that you have really, really, really high iron requirements, but if you're able to meet those through your diet, I'm not saying you should be able to necessarily. Like, if, I guess what I'm trying to say is only use it if you're filling a gap that is known, not just like, oh, got great iron stores. I have a good iron intake, but just have a little top up just in case. Like, I wouldn't do that without guidance from somebody. Mm, I love that you mentioned that. And potentially we'll have to do a second episode talking about mm. potentially nutrients at a more uh, in-depth level and, you know, yeah. the risks or benefits of potentially, you know, going down that path. Because today we've definitely talked about, you know, the foundations, making sure that you're, you know, got lots of variety and color and pairing your carbohydrates with fats and proteins but there's this whole other side of it um, where we could focus more on the nutrients. So, yeah, if there is an interest and if there is a need, definitely let me know and um, I can get our beautiful guest back on, which would be really exciting as well. Uh -huh. Yeah, I would love that. As you can mm -hmm. probably tell, I can chit-chat about this all day, <laughs> <laughs> forever. 
I love it. And you're definitely knowledgeable, definitely a lot of knowledgeable. (laughs) I'm learning things. So that just says a lot, definitely. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Please, please, please let everyone know where they can connect with you, listen to you and all of the above. Um, so thank you for letting me have a little shout out, but thank you for having me. I've, um, I've loved it. I've loved these questions. They've been so cool. And yeah, like I said, I'm a plant-based eater, so it's been cool to be able to be on this podcast talking about it. Um, but you can find me over on Instagram. That's where I hang out the most. Probably I am at nutrition.by.helena. So go follow me there. Lots of tips on GD. And I have my own podcast as well, which is called the gestational diabetes club. So you know, we dive into more specific topics in there, I suppose, rather than just giving the overview of the basics. So lots of episodes you can catch up on. Um, and I think they're the main ways. So yeah, they're the best places to get in touch with me and send me a DM. I love hearing from you. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week. And if you did find this episode useful, I would appreciate it so, so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend. It helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.